morning. Uh, today is an uh, important day for our congregation. Uh, the first week in February is the, um, is the week or the day when we regroup as a congregation. We regroup uh, to reflect back upon the past year, and we refocus our attention on the year ahead. Specifically, as was announced, we have our annual congregational meeting after worship, and there we will share the specifics of our church and the theme and where we are headed. But here, before we do that, during worship, I want to spend this time sharing with you the theme verse for this year. After we do that, we will then proceed to come to the Lord's table as a symbol of solitude and dependence upon Jesus. John chapter 13, uh, our text. Uh, this scene that we have in John 13 is Jesus' last day on earth before his crucifixion. And this is his last meal. And you have to imagine, if it was Jesus' last full day, and this was his last meal, it must have been pregnant with so much intention. Imagine if you had one day to live. Everything you do would be intentional. From the clothes you wear, to the music that you listen to, to the words that you share, to the people that you meet, to the food that you eat, everything would be pregnant with intention. You know, our Lord, on his last full night, probably thought about this day for a really, really long time. He thought and imagined how he would serve his disciples by washing their feet. I'm sure he pictured in his mind over and over again how he would interact with them, what he would say to them. Now, my friend years ago, told, years ago told me that as he and his siblings gathered around their dying father, their father, his last words to their children were this. Don't fight. Don't fight. Take care of one another. And he told me that his father had thought about these words for, for months and months as he was awaiting his death. I hear that these words are pretty common among dying parents. Don't fight. Don't fight. It seems that parents understand their role as the linchpin, the glue to the family. And they are worried that when they depart, when they leave, their children would just go off all on their own. You know, in a very similar vein here, Jesus knows that when he departs, he knows that his disciples will no longer have their master, their rabbi in the flesh to gather around. And so, with the heart of a parent, he addresses them and he tells them these words. In fact, it's interesting that he even calls them little children here. Little children. And so he gives them this word. A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These are the last words the words that Jesus had thought about over and over again to give to his disciples, knowing that he is going to leave. 
You know, towards the end of last year, as we started to round off the year and closing things out and reflecting back, you know, I started to assess. I started to assess myself. I started to look inside my heart and to see some of the sins that are within me. And I started to look at our congregation, this church, started to assess our church and where we were at. And then I started to think about the world, the culture that we are living in, the culture that we are influenced by. And time and time again in prayer, my attention was drawn to this word, John 13, 34, and 35. And I believe this is a word that we desperately need now. This is a timely word. It's a timely word for myself. It's a timely word for our congregation. It's a timely word for the world that we are living in. You know, Christians, non-Christians, professionals, counselors, psychiatrists, teachers, whoever you are, whatever spectrum you fall on, one thing that all these people agree on is that this generation, the culture that we live in, is deeply plagued by a selfish spirit. You know, the prevailing message of our day, the message that we hear in our books, in our movies, and our music is this, life is all about you. What is the goal of life? What is the purpose in life? It's to seek your personal and your highest pleasure. The message that we hear is that we are the center of the universe, that we should be our number one priority. You know, this is even a spirit that has crept into the churches. A few years ago, uh, one of the writers, uh, one of the writers for uh, Times Magazine, Joel Stein, he uh, wrote a cover piece, and the article was entitled "Millennials: The Me, Me, Me Generation." It was the cover piece for that for that month, May 2013, and in that article, Joel Stein he delivers a scathing critique of now America's largest generation. Here are some of his remarks. This is some of his critiques, backed up, of course, by lots and lots of research. Okay, and I'll just highlight some of the things that he says. He says this, millennials are lazy, uh, they are entitled, they are selfish, they are shallow, they are narcissistic, they are fame-obsessed, they are materialistic, and they only care about themselves. Now, baby boomers, don't just sit there nodding your heads, okay? Because interestingly, after delivering this brutal assessment, Joel Stein, he goes on, he continues, and he says, while all of this is true, let's remember the original me generation, the baby boomers. You see, millennials are narcissistic and selfish. They know that. Baby boomers are narcissistic and selfish. They're blind to that. You know, Joel Stein, he continues on in this, this long article, and he makes the point that selfishness and narcissism, the love of self, has always been around. We just have more avenues to express it. You know, when Jesus says here, I'm leaving, I'm about to leave, let me give you a new command, love one another. Jesus, he is fully aware of this spirit. You know, his own disciples were selfish and narcissistic. They were lovers of themselves. 
You know, right before this, when Jesus gives this command, Judas, he actually goes out to betray Jesus. He betrays Jesus for 30 shekels, which is about $20. He sold his teacher for $20. You know, Judas, somewhere along the line, he probably lost faith. Somewhere along the line, he probably thought, you know what, this Jesus, he's not it. I need to get out. And Judas was looking out for number one himself. Judas probably thought, you know what, I need to get out. I need to at least make up for lost time. I need to save face. My reputation is on the line. And so what does he do? He goes and he says, I need to get my investment back. And he sells Jesus to the high priests. How about Peter? Well, that same night when Jesus gets captured, Peter is is watching from afar his master, his teacher, uh, on trial. And when questioned by a servant girl, whose only job is to open doors, when questioned, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter, he denies Jesus three times. Why? Self-preservation. He was looking out for number one. Being associated with Jesus was not worth his reputation, and Peter did not want to jeopardize his future. He thought, you know what? All of this has ended. I need to take care of myself. See, Jesus understood the sinful human inclination to put others last and to put oneself first. That's why whenever Jesus speaks of the future, I mean, he he knows this. He knows that the Spirit is in us, and he knows it's only going to grow. If you look at Matthew 24, this is what he says, predicting the future, talking about what's going to happen at the last days. And he says this, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. He's saying people's hearts will grow cold. And Paul, when he talks about the future, when he talks about the end of the age, this is what Paul says. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will become lovers of self. See, Jesus knows that left to ourselves, we will only grow in selfishness, self-love. And so to battle this, to fight this, he gives us this command. Love one another. To fight our incessant need for self-pleasure and self-gratification, Jesus gives us this command. Love one another. You know, I think this command is often misunderstood and misapplied. And I think these are some of the ways which we understand Jesus' love. Or at least some of the ways that I've applied it. Love one another. Only if they are deserving of it. Wouldn't you say that's how a lot of us operate? Love one another only if they deserve it. Or, love one another only if they appreciate it. Only if they recognize that you are loving them do you continue to love them. Or, love one another only if they have loved you. So it has to be reciprocal. You love me, then I love you. Or about this one. Love one another only if you are capable of loving them. You never want to love to the point where you hurt yourself. You know, Jesus doesn't say any of these things. He says, love one another. 
just as I have loved you. In other words, the standard, the measurement, the goal that he gives his disciples of loving one another is to love just as we have been loved. In uh, 2017, uh, the now international, you know, famous, worldwide, you know, known Korean boy band, BTS, launched a campaign. Launched a campaign with UNICEF, and that campaign was entitled, Love Yourself. For those of you who don't know who BTS is, I really don't know what to say, except get out. Get out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how to explain BTS. You know, I don't, want, I don't want to put our pastor on the spot, you know, Pastor Walton, but this morning we were talking. I said, hey, he was looking at this slide. He's like, oh, what's BTS? And I said, oh, you don't know who BTS is? He's like, is that biblical seminary? <laughs> I said, get out there. <laughs> get out there. Uh, but BTS uh, is, I think they're internationally the most popular boy band. Um, they often hit number one on the Billboard 200. Uh, they sell out concerts faster than Drake and Beyonce. I think they sold out City Field last year in like five minutes or so. Um, by the way, any uh, BTS, uh, what do you call it, armies out there? Any armies? Any fans? I know, so, uh, yeah, our, many of our adults, are, like older folks, are confused. They're like, who are, who are these people? Uh, but uh, BTS is right now the, the most famous, well-known uh, boy band out there. And they launched this campaign, Love Yourself. And they launched this campaign uh, aspiring to help young people love themselves and in turn create a safer and better world. And this is the slogan that they have. Find love in myself, embrace people and society in a larger sense with love. That's their whole campaign. First, love myself, and then I start to love those around me. You know, BTS promoted this campaign through their music, through concerts, even on social media. In fact, in 2017 and 18, uh, they were the number one most mentioned celebrity on social media by far. Okay? And um, what they did was, to promote this campaign, they asked, they asked their fans to post self-loving photos with the hashtag BTS, love myself. In fact, last year, they, they got so big, BTS was invited to speak at the UN. And the leader, if you, for those of you who watched this speech, the leader of, um, I think he's the leader, he uh, gave the speech, and uh, towards the end of his speech, he actually said this. I'm Kim Namjoon, and also RM of BTS. I am an idol and I'm an artist from a small town in Korea. Like most people, I've made many and plenty mistakes in my life. I have many faults, and I have many more fears, but I'm going to embrace myself as hard as I can, and I'm starting to love myself gradually, just little by little. What is your name? Speak yourself. That's a little Korean-American, like Konglish, speak yourself. <laughs> But he says, speak yourself, thank you very much. You know, at first, I thought this was a joke. I thought this love yourself campaign was a joke. I thought, oh, no, not another self-love promotion. But, you know, in a spirit of charity, I realized, you know, this group, this boy band, identified a large number of teens who needed this message. 
because they were victims of violence and hate and rape. And through this campaign, BTS, in fact, was able to directly help these victims. You know, very similarly, Jesus here, on his last full day, he is launching a new campaign. But Jesus' campaign doesn't begin with loving oneself. It begins with God loving us. You know, the Bible, not once does the Bible say to love yourself. The Bible never says love yourself because the only way we can love ourselves is to love ourselves perversely and selfishly at the expense of others. That's the only way we know how to love ourselves. Instead, the Bible says for us to be filled with love, for us to go out and love, you need to first know that you have been loved by someone outside of you. Someone who knew you, yet loved you so deeply. And I think this is a much more powerful message. The gospel tells us that Jesus loved us unconditionally. That Jesus loved us first selflessly. That Jesus loved us eternally and sacrificially. And his act of going to the cross was an act of love. And when you and I understand this, when we realize what Christ has done, it is powerfully transformative. It changes how we view ourselves, and it changes how we view others. Loving yourself will only make you narcissistic, selfish, and entitled. But knowing that you have been loved powerfully, by the God of the universe, that transforms you. That changes you. That enables you to love. You know, as I was reflecting upon the culture of our time, the world that we live in, I also reflected upon our congregation. And I thought about our church. I think we as a church, we... um, We deal with one another. I think we put up with one another. I think we're cordial with one another. We are friendly with one another. But you know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, deal with one another. He says, love one another. And I started to think, what would that look like as a church? What would that look like if a church loved one another as Jesus has loved us? I think there would be a massive paradigm shift as to how we view one another and as to how we view church. You know, I think the present, the current sentiment for all Christians or for most American Christians is this. What do I get out of church? How does church benefit me? Or what's in it for me? But if we understand this command that we have been loved powerfully and now we have this command to love one another, then I think the paradigm shifts Instead of having this consumeristic mentality, what is in it for me to think, now, how can I encourage and serve others? For example, you know, I've spoken with a number of of people who've expressed to me explicitly, I don't go to community groups. And I ask why, and they say, because I don't get anything out of community groups. 
uh, when we have certain things, I ask, oh, how come um, I haven't seen you there? Or well, why don't you come out for these things? The, the answer that I get often is, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for people. I'm too busy. I think a lot of that is still, what is in it for me? But if we have this paradigm shift of loving one another, then I think the question that we start to ask is, how can I encourage and serve others? So the goal of gathering for, let's say, something like community group is not just, what can I get out of it? How can I be fed? You know, we've all seen that rude guest who comes over for dinner, who, so, who shows up late, eats everything, leaves a mess, burps really loudly, and then falls asleep on the couch or the carpet. But if we have this paradigm shift of loving one another, I think now our first thought is, how can I go there and be an encouragement to those who are present? How can I go there to serve other people? I've met with a brother who've actually had this paradigm shift, and he said this, you know, now before I go out to community groups or Bible study, I actually pray, God, let my words, the words that I say, be an encouragement to the people who are there. That's the paradigm shift of loving one another, of putting others first. I mean, even during worship, you know, I, you know, a handful of people, I think our congregation is brutally honest with me. They say, you know what, Pastor, I, during worship, I don't sing. And I ask, why don't you sing? And they say, I don't like the songs. I don't like the music. A lot of times I hear, you know, I don't feel it. You know, and I ask, you know, have you ever given thought that by you singing, you can encourage those that you are sitting next to and around. Because right? the Bible not only tells us to sing to God, but it tells us to sing to one another. Now, have you ever thought that by singing, you can encourage those who are sitting next to you who are having trouble singing? Have you ever thought that by singing, you're edifying the worship? Now, if you're tone deaf, that's another story. Just lip sync, okay? Uh, but for those, for those of you who can sing, by singing, we're actually encouraging and building one another up. And if we love, if we love, how drastically, if we love one another, how drastically would that change the way we view one another? You know, I always thought, man, I wish I can go well, you know, I always thought, man, I wish Jesus can come to our church, all right? Foolishly and selfishly, I, yeah, I thought that. Man, I wish Jesus could come to our church because imagine if Jesus was here. I mean, imagine if Jesus was sitting in the pews. I mean, our church would be the most welcoming church. We'd be the most loving church. We would be the most sacrificial church. We would be the most passionate church. But, you know, I think Jesus anticipated that. He knew this. And that's why he tells us, hey, I'm leaving. Love one another just as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. A church that has received the love of Christ will be the most loving church. You know, I reflected upon our culture, the world, on our congregation, and I started to think about myself. Individually, I started to think, what does this mean for me? John 13, 34, 35. What does it mean for me? What will this look like for me? You know, I think one of the very few jobs in this world that requires you to be friends with everyone is the job of a pastor. 
I have to be nice to everyone. I have to be friends with everyone. If someone wants to hang out, I can't say, uh, you know, we have our differences. We're very different. You know, I have different interests. You know, I'm obliged to be friends, even with people that I normally won't be friends with. It's part of the job. And I started to think about John 13. What is Jesus commanding me to do here? And it's much more than just being friends and acquaintances with the congregation. John 13, at least for me, means to love, even when the congregation is unlovable. Am I being a little too honest? Are you uncomfortable? Because I am. You know, this command, at least for me, made me slightly afraid. If I love like Jesus has loved me, there is the possibility of getting hurt. You know, for those of you who know me a little bit, I am a master at not getting hurt. I've perfected the art of keeping people at arm's length. I get close, but not all the way. And I start to think, if I love, that means I can get hurt. But as I reflected more upon this theme verse, it started to reassure me and powerfully transform me. We don't have to worry about getting hurt when we love. We can love people freely and liberally because we have been loved in a very powerful way. You know, it reminds me a lot of Elizabeth Bennett in Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Um, Elizabeth Bennett, who's called Lizzie in the novel, she's always someone who keeps people at arm's length. She doesn't believe in love. She doesn't believe she'll find true love. She's always skeptical. She always keeps people away. But she, she meets a man by the name of Mr. Darcy, and Mr. Darcy is a great man of wealth and prestige. He's, he is every, he's a man that everyone wants. And Mr. Darcy seeks out Elizabeth Bennet. But even as he seeks her out, Lizzie, she keeps him away. She rejects his love. She even mocks him. There's this one uh, scene where uh, he makes his proposal. Uh, the first proposal is probably one of the most well-known lines. In vain I have struggled, it will not do. My feelings will not be re repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and how I love you. Lizzie never sought his approval. He never, she never sought after him. But as time goes on, she begins to desire his love. She begins to want it more and more. And what happens is, as she has received the love of Mr. Darcy, she begins to be transformed internally. She begins, that, that love powerfully changes her. And she go, undergoes a material change that's so radical that what she does is she receives with gratitude and pleasure his proposal. And for those of us who have difficulty loving one another, for those of us who have difficulty caring for one another, I draw your attention back to this command. Love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus has loved us first. 
gospel with a transformative love, with a powerful love. And he frees us now from the fear of being hurt, from the fear of giving too much. And he says, love as I have loved you. May our church, may our congregation show forth this love as we continue to go forth in the year 2019. Join me in prayer at this time.